Hello, everyone, and welcome to Processing Severance, an after-show podcast brought to you by the Hollywood Critics Association. Today, we are going to be talking about Episode 7, and whoa, can I just say there is so much that happened in this episode. A lot, a lot to take in. I'm your host, Rasha Goel, joined by my co-host, Jeff Ewing. I feel very safely situated right now. I was going to ask you that. You read my mind. And... Bye-bye, Bert. Rick Hong. <laughs> I'm going to be testing you both on your dancing skills after this show. Just want to give you the heads up, so be prepared. I will give Milchick a run for his All money. All right, Rick. Not I'm a good run, but I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? So much has happened. And before we go into the actual episode, um, again, as always... Thank you all for chiming in. We are seeing your comments on our YouTube page. That's, again, for the Hollywood Critics Association. So make sure you are subscribed to our page and watching our shows. We're also on Twitter, on Instagram, so make sure you're following us. Um, But a lot of you have been sending in emails to uh, shows at HollywoodCriticsAssociation.com. Make sure subject is severance so we know that it's coming for us. And I want to give a shout out to two people uh, this week. First one is to Mike D. Mike D, I loved how you kind of gave us your two theories on this show. Guys, let me know what you think of this. So Mike D says, first, this is an experiment similar to The Village or The Last Divergent book and movie. And second... It always comes back to military applications. I think the whole severance program is to cure PTSD. Soldiers go off to war, then they come back. And they have they can't have PTSD because they won't remember the experience. What they are actually doing at Lumen is meaningless. It's the bifurcation of the brain that is important. I hope I said that word right. Sounded right to me. All right. <laughs> so, well, let's just... In 20, 30 seconds, talk about these theories. I think, thank you, Mike D, for sharing that and for emailing us. Listen, listen if Mike D of the BC Boys is emailing us, then I'm down to sit there and say, PTSD, 100%. I agree. I like that theory. I like that idea. I'm not sure about for this show, but I do like the idea. Jeff, what do you got? No, you know, I, I think that's spot on. Uh, we, uh, I think there, there might be more layers to it than that, but I definitely think the hypothesis that it's military in, in origin, we know... I mean, in in human history, there have been tons of really uh, completely messed up, absolutely bonkers things that you know they've tried to do for military tried to do for military purposes, and we see that possibly happening here. So, Mike D, thank you for sharing that theory with those theories with us. And Brianna also wrote into us saying, at the beginning, when Milchek is walking Audi Heli through the severance procedure, and they're walking by the giant cure head on the wall, he says. He can't express how excited they are that she joined the team, that the work she does is really important. So this possibly explains why Heli is so cold in the video when she dismisses any Heli's resignation request. Audi Heli is someone that's very important to Lumen. I know that's a conversation we've kind of Mm. had as well. Maybe she's doing work on something to do with severance procedures being used in the general public, like the politicians that were mentioned. I'm not sure. I do think it's super interesting that Audi Heli is clearly up to some bad stuff while any Heli is resisting so hard. Speaks to the basic instincts and what we're taught and how that shapes us. Just thought I'd put in my two cents. Thanks for the podcast and keep up the good work. Well, Brianna, thank you for that. We appreciate you watching and joining us and and sharing your two cents on this. And we have a special surprise for you. We talked to Jen Tullock, who plays Devin, Mark's sister, on Severance. 
I was wondering about your character, Devin, because initially, initially, you know, like your character's there. And I was thinking, okay, she's there to kind of humanize, you know, Adam Scott, Mark's character. And I was thinking, okay, she's just kind of there. But the awesome thing about your character, as we see as like the episodes go, is that you open up a whole nother world and rule to severance. It's not just about the, you know, not just at work. Now it's in this whole outer world. And I was wondering, did they give you the heads up or do you find that out as you get the scripts? Yes. Well, for one thing, you're an incredible hype man. And I'd love to see if you're available uh, for my <laughs> And uh, yes, so I I had a general understanding of the, the big storylines uh, as they would arc through the season. But there were, I decided early on to only uh, make myself hip to what was happening in Devin's world, so on the outside world, because I thought if she doesn't need to know, then I don't need to know. I, I'd prefer to sort of inhabit the world that she inhabits. Um, so there were definitely things happening inside of Lumen that I did not know about until I watched the episodes in real time. I also waited to watch them until they were out with everyone because I wanted to watch them with friends and sort of experience it in the room. And so there are huge surprises and reveals that I did not know about, uh, which have been super exciting to experience with my loved ones. Uh, and then to answer your other question, yeah, the thing that I was so excited about with Devin is she's a slow burn. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously mm -hmm. when we meet her, you think, okay, here's this warm grounded person. We, this is lovely to see this lived in sibling relationship that reorients us in a world that feels soulful and a little less um, sterile, you know, than when we're in the crazy world of Lumen. And uh, as, as I read the scripts, as they moved through the season without giving too much away, um, I was very uh, happily surprised to see how she does come into play. And I do think that uh, it's planted, you know, because when we do meet her, she's, well, two things. One, she's in a, a moment of uh, obvious concern for Mark. And I think to, to me, I've always said she represented the emotional sobriety of people who have chosen not to sever. So she's living in her pain. You know, she's dealing with grief. She's dealing with the pregnancy. She's dealing with the experiences of uh, after pregnancy, things not being as rosy as she thought they might be. Um, and what does that look like when you don't have the luxury of shutting off? And then what does that look like when the person you love, your brother, is choosing to shut off, but you're starting to realize maybe there's more to this situation than meets the eye. So yes, I'm very excited for, for people to stick with her storyline through the end of the season because it does get a little jazzier. You know, it's interesting. We were told, right, that uh, Patricia does the same thing. She watches okay. everything in real time with people. Okay. She's not ahead of the game or anything. So then you're telling me, so <laughs> where we're at right now, so then you're telling me that the Ms. Casey reveal was new to you too as you were watching it? I knew uh, there, uh, there were some things in a script involving my character down the line that gave that away. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll, that's all I can say. So I did, I knew th that reveal, but I didn't know how it would be revealed in the actual show. Cause in that episode, obviously like Devin's not in, in Lumen. So uh, yes, that, it, you know what it was? It was more small uh, relationship things and uh, like plot stepping stones that I didn't know about. Cause again, I knew the big okay. sort of game of the, of the plot, but there were in between things. 
for example, I had not read any of the scenes between Bert and Irving, which I think I speak for all of us in saying, is that not the most wonderful romance we've ever we've, watched? We've, yeah, we've, we've like dissected that through and through it. And just to say the fact that John Turturro and Christopher Walken taking those roles, like kind of even at their age and exploring that really haven't seen that on television. And even for those two actors, I've seen a lot of their credits and I can't see, I've really seen like that, di that dynamic and that's what makes it so beautiful. Totally. I think watching, I'm, I'm here for, for watching people fall in love over the age of 40 and also, you know, to have it be a queer couple is so meaningful. I mean, to me personally and I, I, to all of us on the show, and we were also thrilled to watch it. And beyond that, just these two human beings and why their characters are, are drawn to each other, I thought was such a beautiful, we talk a lot about Devin and the outside world being, you know, maybe where the sort of beating heart stays rhythmic in the world because when we're in Lumen sometimes you know it has to stop but I feel like Burton Irving hold that down in Lumen so beautifully well you know your character so far you know you have you work with Adam Scott a lot you work with Patricia Arquette so I want to start with Patricia first because you have a lot of scenes with her and then were you aware of the choice that she made because it's like mock like we always sit there just like that that accent that like just like that slow delivery uh -huh. that she chose I don't know when you, you know I don't know if it's at the table reading or if like when you get on set and she starts doing it if you can even keep a straight face you know I had such a good time with her uh what an amazing human she is in addition to being such a force as we all know um I knew I hadn't been around her doing Cobell. I think, I mean, to be honest, we had done the table read in 20, the beginning of 2020. Um, and then like everything else, we're shut down because of COVID. So I hadn't, I didn't remember what she was doing for Cobell. Um, and, and at that point in the season, you know, I had never heard her do it. So I only knew her as Mrs. Selvig and that character. And yes, I mean, there's a scene, I think in episode seven, where we're in the kitchen together. Um, and she's making me laugh and uh -huh. we would sort of get it going before the take so we could come in with a laugh. And that was not difficult. I'll put it to you that way. Cause she's just a delight. And so, uh, so warm in her waking life that it's, it, it's insane to think about her and this nefarious, um, guys, because she's such a warm light as a person, but yes, I was afraid of her, um, in character. I was afraid of her because you could see there's like that. There's that little glitch behind the eye. Um, yeah, what a what a treat. I mean, I will say, if you had told me a couple of years ago that Patricia Arquette teaching me how to hold a, a baby's mouth to my own body, um, trying to breastfeed, if you would have told me I would have been doing that, I would have said probably not. But uh, yeah, it was also great because she you know, I have so much business with the baby and uh, I, I don't, I'm not a parent, I don't have children. And so I was doing my best to crowdsource from my friends that are parents because um, I wanted to get it right. But Patricia was so sweet, she's a mom. And there were so many times where she'd say, oh honey, no, that's not how you swaddle a baby and give it to me. And so she was, she was very nurturing to me, trying to nurture this baby. 
No, no, that was actually one of my favorite scenes of yours is that is that scene, you know, where she's she's like, show the baby the nipple, do all this thing or whatever. And then at the end of it, she's like, takes the baby and just whack. Like she's like showing how to be so careful with the baby. And then she just tosses it on top of like the, the breast pump machine or whatever. Uh, I will, if I, that may have been one of the only times I did break because I could not handle it. And she and she did it more than one time. And it was as if it was happening the first time every time I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> How about working with Adam? Because like, you know, when he's in Lumen, I figure I feel like people get a lot of the fun scenes with Adam, like in Lumen, you know, it's like, you know, like with a uh, Milicek and Mark, you know, it's just like make kind eyes, yeah. you know, it's like Adam doing all that stuff. But with you guys, like that relationship, when you're shooting scenes, it's always like, you know, it's just like, oh, you got to look out for the depressed Mark, you know, or whatever, or, you know, you, you guys haven't gotten any of the fun scenes yet. But so how is it like working with Adam, like more in his like dramatic sense versus his comedic sense? Yeah, I mean, we obviously all know him for his his lightning sharp wit and and incredible improv skills. He's he's such a gifted comedian. But uh, it was really lovely to be able to show up in these characters with him, as because what he's done so beautifully is show us the contrast between these two people and the difference between what someone grieving looks like and what someone who doesn't have to grieve looks like. And I I loved working with Adam. He's 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 so committed and kind and intelligent and emotionally intelligent. I remember thinking there was a scene where we were, I think it's in the first episode where Devin makes him a sandwich and he can obviously riff around anyone. I mean, he's a genius, but I remember thinking, oh, you're, we're improvising in a specific way because you're doing it in character as Audi depressed Mark, which you, Adam, would have much faster quips and what a brilliant choice. I feel like the impulse would be, to, to to riff back and forth, but he was so in that character. I actually thought that was one of the most, that one of the coolest testaments to what a brilliant actor he is, is that he knew, he knew that Mark wouldn't riff back that way, you know? And if he did, it would be in a different rhythm. And uh, I just am so blown away by his performance in this. He's he's so, obviously the, the, the soul of the show, he's our eyes, he's who's, you know, and, uh, fell in love with him immediately. It was not difficult to to sort of establish a sibling banter and rapport. I'm very close with my brother. He's my best friend, and uh, I'm I'm accustomed to that dynamic. And Adam is uh, so generous and kind, and loves his family so much that the second you meet him, it's hard not to feel not to bask in that light. So it was pretty easy. We're also both political nerds, so I, I think between takes, you know, we would be doing these super dramatic, intense scenes about incredibly heavy things. And I would be like, okay, but have you read this George Lakoff book? Cause it's going to change your life. And he was like, oh, have I read it? So that was, uh, that was fun. So, okay. Finally, there's like this one debate. And so like when, when the show first started, I was thinking, okay, just the way that the, the production design looked and everything, you know, that I was like, well, this is an experiment. Lumen is, you know, everybody that's a part of this process is an experiment, but then it evolved. It evolved. And my co-hosts were saying, you know, that the Egan's and Lumen are also a cult. And we've kind of started seeing that a little bit. So like, I was wondering what your take is if you look at Lumen and the Egan's as like a version of a cult as well. You know, I think that any system or community or organization that requires people turn off and ignore their human impulse is dangerous. And 
in this case, yes, I think there are definitely parts of Lumen and the Egans that, be, that could be considered a cult and are certainly influenced by cult-like communities we know in, in real life. But I also think what Dan and Ben and Aoife did beautifully was show us the human moments of why someone might be drawn to this. You know, there's a reason I think people want structure. There's a reason people want to feel told what to do. And it's because we find it comforting when we're in abject pain. And so there's all the fun, like jazzy elements of being like, this is nuts. And like, this place is crazy. Baby goats, what's with the baby goats? But then also, you know, having moments in these, in these beautiful performances with all the characters in Lumen of being like, oh, I, I understand why you did this. Like you were hurting. And so I think it's a cool it's a cool dosy do between being like these people are crazy and also feeling empathy for them. I just want to say thank you all. And Bert, I see you. Congratulations. <laughs> Good job, buddy. Bon voyage. So I'm going to get right into this show. Um, like I said at the beginning, a lot, a lot happening. And I think one of the main themes, a couple of themes, actually, we see emotions getting riled up. Rick and I were talking about this before the show where you see, you know, anger, frustration, um, sympathy in some way. And you got, uh, and you got to be laughing in some of these scenes. Cause I was, I was, I was, I was like laughing <laughs> out loud. Yeah. I mean, seriously, you get all the emotions in this one episode and we're only on episode seven. Still got two more to go. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, and then also I, I think for me, what was so interesting was just watching this team come together now and rebel. Like each mm-hmm. one of them has had their own individual incidents happen that they have come together as a team and united and said, okay, we need to really look into this. We are no longer just falling into, you know, this mm-hmm. um, process or into this, uh, under this leadership without questioning it. And now they're starting to question everything that's happening there. So we could even start off with the opening scene, I think, which is quite intense. Well, because we were left on a cliffhanger. Yeah. We were left mm-hmm. on a cliffhanger. You know, Mark meets... This mysterious person who we still don't know who the hell she is. You no know? name, but it's a mystery. Yeah, so like, so, that, so that means you got to check on to episode eight at least. <laughs> you know, right? But no, but yeah, well, she's we, we're left on this cliffhanger. So finally, like she's talking about why they're meeting up, and something else happens in that scene where basically Doug Rayner, the security guard, is murdered. Um, and that's quite an intense scene. Cause I think watching Mark, like my heart was beating you guys. Like I just <laughs> felt so bad for him cause he's got this innocent childlike, um, character to him and his eyes. And he's just mortified by what's happening. Didn't really expect this situation to happen. And then we right. also find out how long Mark has been severed. Well, the, the interesting thing is Mark has been doing so well up to this point. Uh, Audi Mark, that is. He's, he's, you know, started to date. He's starting to get more optimistic. And so he, he goes on this mysterious rendezvous. 
And then all of a sudden sees a man he doesn't know show up and get murdered right in front of his face. And the guy says, it's like, hey, you know, we know each other. So it's yeah. just like, yeah. so you didn't get the explanation of like, freaks. oh, hey, great. You know, it's like you want more. And then all of a sudden, right. boom, the yeah. person's like dead in front of you. Exactly. And he doesn't really know even who the person who did it is. He's just all of a sudden implicated. And she's like, well, your DNA are here. Well, that's helpful. Uh, no why. No, this, is, like, this is like his second death within weeks. Because, you know, met Petey. Petey dies. Yes. yes. You know, not as gruesome as, at least, you know, not in Mark's eyes, as gruesome as, you know, as Grainer's, but... I'm going to say it could be traumatic for him, though. Yep, absolutely. A lot of trauma happening, especially with his wife's death already happening, right? And Mm -hmm. there's also a turn in the show where, you know, initially, like, the show is, like, a little bit of suspense, maybe, a little bit of a mystery, some dark black comedy on this, but then when you do this, it's like a thriller. Yeah. When you kill somebody in this manner, it's a thriller, so... Especially with the opening. Yep, and and as you mentioned too, uh, she kind of lets loose in the conversation that they're having that he's confused about the entire time. That oh, he's only been there; he's he's a baby at the company, and two we years. for two years, right? So it's it's interesting because we don't, you know, we've talked about this before. We don't really have much of a sense of the amount of time people t- typically typically spend severed or at Lumen, but. For two years to be a drop of the bucket means there are so many lifers in Lumen history. Yeah. Well, it makes you wonder, too, who's been... I, I, it made me wonder, like, who's been there the longest, right? And how many years have they been severed, and how does that affect them? So that's the questioning that started going on Because I think mind. what they, I think they want to say, like, what Bert said, seven years for him? Or was it Irv that said seven years for him? Like, prior, oh. like, in the series. I can't remember which guy. I can't but like, I'm wondering either. if it was But that, at that stage was one of those two guys, right? It was... Seven is kind of what we knew mm-hmm. as a starting point. Okay, this program's been around for maybe seven years. We might, so, that's what we think, right? Based uh, on the information uh, that we're seeing. Right, with the characters, with the, right. right. And so then like, at least we're given information on Mark that it's only two years for him. Can we agree that one of the pivotal scenes here was the party for Hallie? <laughs> I mean, the defiant jazz. The you know, music, I mean, and in the, true, like, good actor fashion, you know, if you guys... Hopefully we're watching our, you know, our after show previous to this one where, you know, Jeff is interviewing Britt Lauer, you know, and she talks about, you know, he asked her and said like, hey, what's one of your favorites? And, you know, she, we hadn't, none of us had seen it yet, but she refers to this episode. So it's kind of like, so it's like one of her favorites and definitely one of my favorites. Well, to be fair, she got a maraca. Uh, <laughs> every time yes. someone hands me a maraca and I get to do Defiant Jazz, uh, especially when they explain to me what Defiant Jazz is, I'm always a big fan. But you know, but Irv wanted the castanets, man. I would have you know, well, rocked that castanet And too. Dylan wasn't having it. I just want to mention something that caught my eye, though, in this scene, just from the filmography or the cinematography part of it, was the colors. Like, all of a sudden, this is the first time we're mm-hmm. starting to see more color in the room. And I kind of was taking a note at the wardrobe. And to me, it was important. It was significant. Britt actually had a yellow mustard uh-huh. dress on. That uh-huh. was the first mm-hmm. time. Otherwise, the colors that we have seen are just very dull, very low-key, very soft. So that spoke to me for something as far as the changes that were coming throughout the show mm-hmm. and maybe a slight reflection. But let's talk about Dylan's breakdown in this scene. I did not see this coming. I did not see him attacking Milchek, but that buildup was so amazing. That was my absolute favorite part of the episode. Uh, so you have this interesting, odd, multicolored dance party. Uh, we'll demonstrate some of those moves in a second. And, no, and you notice morning. that Milchik, like his normal uniform is 
a button up that's a short sleeve yeah. with a tie. Here he shows up and he's in a white turtleneck. Yeah. Well, it's got to move. It's got to be flexible. Yeah. You know, he's got to do that, <laughs> he's, that head bob, walk like an Egyptian. I don't know what he's doing. Do. But yeah, he's like, you know what? He probably watched a lot of the bangles. I'm going to ask him someday if we're going to talk to him. Like, He probably watched the like, walk like an Egyptian bangles because a lot of his moves were. Well, he was really into it. He yeah. was having a great time at this party. So you have Dylan who just gets there. And as soon as he gets off the elevator, he has questions, right? Before the dance party, before anything. He is. Was that my kid? Uh, was yeah. that my kid? He has so many questions, and Milchek is just trying to distract him with you know gadgets and gizmos and we'll not get, we'll get you some more perks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not even have anymore. But this is the first time he's not buying into it. I right. think that's what's so great to see. Like this guy who loves all these prizes and thrives on it is just so over it. He doesn't care. Exactly. And so when this, uh, I, I love the scene where the dance party's starting and he's sitting at his desk and Milchek is, you know, riling everybody up and he's just sitting there like this the entire time. Fuming, right? And you can tell he's just staring at the camera. It's, you know, it's his monitor, but we get that perspective. And uh, he just loses it. Compl- well, did you guys expect him to attack Milchek? No. I did not see no, that No, because, you know. <laughs> he Dylan, fights Dylan's, him. <laughs> yeah, Dylan. Well, but that goes along with the kid thing. You know, I've mm-hmm. always said, like, right. maybe they're, they're children in some aspect. Who bites? Kids do. Adults yeah. like punch. Adults punch and you know and push and everything mm-hmm. or like whatever. But a kid bites, and then the same thing like before that. You know when you know I like, go to the previous scene for a second, but like the two years. Oh, you're still a baby. So there's always like these right. children references in the show. Well, and they're always trying to pacify them. So even when the party mm-hmm. started, right, yes. it almost felt like, well, we're, we're all having a bad day. Because, you know, uh, Helly looks over to Milchek and she's like, well, what happened to you? Obviously, all of us are having a bad day because you're mm-hmm. monitoring our entrance and exit into the office. Right. You're walking in each of us in and out. So it's like they always find this way to pacify the children to make sure, you mm-hmm. know, they're happy in the playground. And, and, and they're definitely back to those types of motivations. Because, you know, how do you pacify kids? You you give them little you promise them little like doodads and gizmos and things. And then in here, right, it's it's like uh Heli hits 75% on Sienna, is what he says. Yes. So they get an MDE, the musical dance experience. And then meanwhile, Irv kind of referring back to Irv, he's like, but she only hits 73. 73. He's like, how do we have this party? We have to waste two percent. Everybody, yeah, you sit there and say you're gonna give us a party. Let's have a party. Nobody sits there and says, "Oh, but no," you know. So like, it's still good to see that like Irv is still kind of exists, even if he is distracted by birth. Right, right. It's just like one of those things where you know you have someone's bir- well, like a coworker's birthday uh, on a Saturday, and they're like, "Well, we're gonna celebrate on Friday," and then everybody has that one coworker who's like, "Like, uh, 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 you sit there, not their birthday." Yeah. <laughs> like nobody asked you. Well, and speaking of Bert, so okay, so this scene this scene goes down. They take um, Dylan off Milchek, <laughs> and then that's when they decide to create their plan. Now they've come, you know. Dylan's shared his piece of information with them about his child, and which is anybody also says like, dude, there's a program that we didn't that they, like, you know, like Milchek explained them called the overtime contingency. Mm-hmm. You know, so like he's like, yeah, he's telling them that thing. And just like, dude, this thing exists. Like we didn't know as workers down here that there's a whole other thing that exists for us. Plus, that's when they look into that security card that Mark has, which leads them to all question 
are there even other security people around here? They've only seen Doug till mm-hmm. date. So then they decide to go and check out the office. And I love how they make this plan. And as they're making their way down to that office, of course, Irv is so obsessed with his dear Bert that he's just in a, he's in La La Land. And he's like, I will see you guys later and just trails off to see Bert. I love that moment, right? That was the best. Because, you know, they get together. And he's like, yeah, yeah, this sounds good. This sounds good. And then as soon as the doors open, he's like, later. Anyway. Uh, well, and speaking of the doors that they put in, what I thought was interesting was, you know, through the other episodes, what I didn't realize is that how far away their room is compared to where the elevator is. And it's the first, like one of the first times for me where it's just like, he's like, I'm going to ask, you know, Milichek's like, I'm going to escort you to, you know, the MD, you know, the MDR room or whatever. And mm. to see how, like how many, like just kind of hallways they kind of have to go be, before they get there. I always thought it was like nearby the elevator. I did too. Mm-hmm. I think it gives you a bigger picture of how far it and really like is maze, and how much water. Yeah, uh-huh. well, it's that whole maze idea that we've talked about throughout this entire And why PD needed right? to start like doing the diagram to say this is where everything That's is because right, yeah. it's not yeah. as close and obvious on some end that we thought it was going to be. Yeah, exactly. And and even in following, you know, his little makeshift uh the the makeshift uh map still get it possible to get lost, get turned around uh because every corner looks the same as every yes. other corner. That's the brilliancy of the direction, right? Okay, so There's a lot more scenes. We're only going to talk about a couple of them. Now, a lot of the stuff happens at the office, but one of the most eerie things that stood out to me was Miss Corbell and uh, Mark's sister and how she's there to help kind of teach her how to breastfeed the baby. First of all, can we talk about that Chucky-looking doll? I mean, if anybody walked into my home to train me with that, I'd be like, you need to find another baby. Well, you know what this is? is Well, this is what this is, though. This... (laughs) is a shout-out to another Apple TV Plus series that's awesome called Servant. And if you want to see another creepy-looking baby, go watch that show because when I saw this creepy-looking baby show up, I was like, oh, I know that kind of a baby. I've seen it in another show like this. Great so plug, Greg. Yeah, Great yeah, plug. So, Thank you for sharing that So there that you plug. go. But, that, but the whole interaction was so creepy and eerie, right? Even the way Miss Corbell's laughing and, mm-hmm. and the dialogue they're having and, you know, his poor sister is just, like, confiding in this woman and just feeling so connected whereas this woman is just so devious she's very manipulative uh they get to talking about uh you know his sister starts to talk about um you know starts to dance around some of the concerns that he has started to express to her uh even though we haven't seen him finish that conversation and all that you know harmony wants to talk about is oh does he talk about his wife does he talk about this she gets like she kind of sidesteps it and gets to even more personal stuff and we find out maybe part of the reason why at the end of the episode, we'll get there. But she's so invasive and insidious and creepy. Realistically, she's probably also uh, the ultimate servant villain. And if you watch this, if you watch this, you know, you should, like notice like in that scene, she's very like, she's like, this is what you do. You like drop your thing. You show the baby your nipple, blah, blah, blah. And then she takes a doll and she just chucks it out. Yes. That's, <laughs> like, yeah, that's what was so funny <laughs> to me. I'm like, you are it's like, evil. Yeah, it's like, you're, you're like, yeah, you're showing all these things. You're being all nice. And all of a sudden just boom, you just throw the doll like on top of like the, the <laughs> machine, you know, whatever, the but milking I, machine. And... I think that sets up her character even more for us because <laughs> we see that coldness when she's at the office, right? And the way that she talks to the employees and just the way she runs the entire thing you can't you see that in her eyes even though she's in this scene i I was staring at her eyes the whole time she still has that cold mystery throughout 
the entire Absolutely scene right. here and at the office. Yeah, because the trick is she's uh, doing performative humanity, right? She's so well said. Performative humanity. 100%, thank you. No, 100% she's doing performative humanity because uh, her true self is the self we see where she's being authoritarian and she's manipulating people like pawns. And then you you can tell that it's performative when she's uh, Selvig in the outside world because it looks so weird and false. Like... Her opening scene where, you know, she starts to ask Mark why he's uh, throwing something out at an odd time. And, and how does she know when he throws his trash out? Like, she is totally yeah, she's watching like, you are him. five minutes later than usual. <laughs> uh, and then she has this weird comment to try and sound, like, casual. Like, Jack Frost needs some dandruff shampoo. No one has ever said that. Literally no, at no you know time. what? That's something that she probably read in one of Rickon's books. <laughs> That, that sounds like in, something right? that Rickon would say. It's the second book. Yes, because bulls are lies and like whatever. <laughs> yeah, so she is a whole different story. Um, there Again, there's just so much that I was thinking. You know, the, we got the plan. We got Bert retiring, uh, Irv's reaction to that. And again, I think this scene was so important too. Um, first of all, Milchek kind of except, you know, announcing that, oh, he's the only um, – We've got one refiner here, which was kind of funny to me. Like, oh, we'll need to look into why he's like here. Everyone belongs, and then we have one Water, person. Yes. <laughs> so we need to look into that. But this scene was so important to me because of just you again. So here's Earth, right? Throughout all the episodes, we see him as one of the more dedicated employees. You know, anytime the other teammates are questioning things, he's kind of like, no, this, we got to follow the rules. This is the way that it says it in the handbook, blah, blah, blah. This is one of the first times I think that we really start to see him questioning things too. And I think there was, I wrote this line down that he said, um, are you all going to just stand there and let him die? Um, he says that when mm. they're announcing Bert's retirement and then goes off into a little bit of a speech and I don't know, that moment just was really important to me because it made me realize that Irv is finally also questioning the system and where he fits into the system and why they're all there and what they want to do about it. Well, Jeff has a favorite quote from that scene. Smog motherfucker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no. Fun fact. Uh, so before I watched the episode, uh, Rick texted me, have you, have you watched the episode yet? You're going to love it. And I'm like, okay. So then I queued it up next thing. And as soon as they hit that line, I'm just like, you it's perfect. It was perfectly it's delivered. It's not something you would ever think that you would hear from, from Herb's mouth. That's why I love it so much because it's that moment where he realizes he is completely fed up and that his delivery goes from his nice, by the book, passive aggressive to you smug mother. Yep. Did Beautiful. not expect that. Did I mean, and now that. we've got, okay, so now we have, you know, we've, we've been following around Mark in his outer world. And we've been exposed to Helly's Audi, Audi person on video. And now they showed us Bert's, you know, like Bert's person. Right. You know, like, I don't know who you guys are, but, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, he's, he's, you know, it's like saying goodbye to himself and saying goodbye to everybody else. <laughs> right. But, like, it's interesting to see that, like, that's not something that I was expecting was to see Audi Bert before everybody else. Mm-hmm. The, the outcome makes sense to sit there and say, like, okay, clearly, like, we need to retire this guy on some end yeah. from the, from the, uh, from Lumen. Right. Yeah. I, I did think two things were interesting. One, I did think that it was interesting that he started by saying 
Like, oh, the surprise isn't another trip to the break room. Like, they didn't just retire him. They made sure to recondition and punish him before retiring him. And then I also love in the retirement video where he starts just naming off things he doesn't know. Like, I don't know what you look like. I don't know your hairstyle. I don't know your favorite band. You know, now I'm just making stuff up. But I'm sure there is, like, some cut somewhere with... uh. <laughs> Well, and in a way, too, I mean, I think the retirement, as we can see, is a forced retirement. Yep. You know, it's mm-hmm. part of the punishment. So it's not like it's a glorified thing. You know, and just and you actually just saying that right now, it's it's like at work, too. It's just mm-hmm. kind of like where you don't give someone a choice. It's like we either, you know, we'll, we'll give you like, yeah. we'll, you know, someone dedicates their time and like whatever at a company. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it's just like, yeah, we'll give you a forced retirement. Just. And yeah, right. and, and what it is, it's like it's like when you see like movies and stuff. It's like, oh, you get you know, like my pension gives me that gold watch, and they're all disgruntled. Here, it's like, oh, here's your forced retirement, and we'll play a video for you. We'll play some music, and here's your watermelon party. I was just gonna here's a watermelon <laughs> party. Yeah. I mean, there, the guys are hiring, and he gets a watermelon party. I was like, come on. But that that's what's so clever about this series, right? Like in every episode, we are constantly getting this subliminal or subconscious messages that we as human beings experience in our lives on a daily basis. And it really makes you think again about how that work-life balance is being sustained in your actual life mm-hmm. and what you're doing about it. Except at the end of the day, you know, for th- there are lots of really great jobs. I certainly enjoy what I'm doing for a living now. Uh, hopefully all of you at home uh, really do too. But Dude, I'm just waiting for the two more episodes and then... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think they're going to be in. Intense. We'll get there. <laughs> um, but the the interesting thing is, we've all had those jobs where we know that we're just a cog in the machine, and the only thing we get when we quit is happier. Like you don't get <laughs> you don't get anything. That's your reward. Um, anything else? I mean, we're going to talk about the ending because that was really important too, uh, with the, with the photograph and stuff. But I think we saw a lot of build up in this episode that really is setting us up for episodes eight and nine as the season comes You know, to yeah, and like one of, and one of those things is like, okay, so if Irv went to go see Bert, then Helly and Mark had their mission to, find, you know, get to the control room. And find the, mm-hmm. you know, to... The folder and the information. Because yes. since, since Dylan gave up to say, like, there is this thing right. called the overtime contingencies. And they can have us take over well, the bodies of our Audis. Yep. And we see, yeah, and we see that crazy room. We see, like yeah. not just like the list of their names, and like you actually can track Cabell coming down the elevator. Mm-hmm. But these like other names, I didn't even take time yet to pause to watch because mm-hmm. I'm sure those are characters that maybe will get introduced later too or not. But just like kind of seeing like what a whole other like kind of seeing like that control room of you know Grainer Grainer's old office. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and the yeah. control. What's so interesting? You mentioned control too. Also watching the control of how. They're looking for this information, and she's coming down the elevator. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and it's like they're still that they're controlled by her, and there's that panic and mm-hmm. fear. And, and one thing that's really interesting to me about you know we start to be able to between last episode and this one really see the extent of control that Lumen might have in the larger world, because you know we we get the implication that the woman she had met with the baby might have been you know, triggered through the pregnancy and then 
you know, just whatever happens to that. Any wouldn't even be the right term, I guess, anymore. I mean, it could be like a different ship. It could be. You but know, still not, the concept not, of being severed, right? It's happening exactly. at Lumen, and now it's outside of Lumen. So, it's, But right, but like maybe like a different chip. Like, chip, Lumen, right. ha, like Lumen has a yes. specific chip for the people that work right. at Lumen, and right. then there's a different one for this scenario. Or mm-hmm. as, you know, as like Mike D from the Beastie Boys mentioned, you know, too, about, you know, PTSD for the military. You know, maybe that's like the next upgrade of a chip that they're going to try to do. Could be. Uh, but the... Uh, the interesting thing for me is that so if they can have these different versions of you, you know, trigger you into certain situations, right? And they can control a sort of thing based off of space, as we've seen with the elevator, or t- like where you are or time, uh, and they can trigger you at any moment. They absolutely could have plants hypothetically all over the world where they have a version of that any self that they just trigger does stuff, you know, in political office or wherever else. Uh, basically, they have the capacity to be infinitely shady. No, and I mean, it's, it's <laughs> like, a, no, what I like too is like when they bring it back to Dylan and they're all in the supply room because... I don't know. I guess the supply room must. That's like the <laughs> meeting a, area. Yeah, yeah. But, it's like the coffee room. But you know, you know, Helly rips out that piece of paper that has the instructions about how to use the thing. Mm-hmm. So she's trying to dissect it, and you know, Dylan's like, "Oh well, like, you have to have like one per." It's it's almost like a, like a nuke like a nuclear bomb right. type situation. Like one person has the key here, the other person has a key here, and you need to turn it at the same mm-hmm. time. You know, like that's that's like an also interesting like something else that I just thought it was cool that she just grabbed the instruction thing, but then yeah. to sit there and say like, "Oh, now, but you have to do this double thing because." In the previous episode, we only saw the one, like the one hand and the one switch. Right. right. We didn't see. So I, I guess, I guess, like there, there must have been like production budget restraints, so they couldn't show. <laughs> it's hard to have two hands yeah. in, a, in a show. It's expensive, man. You know, hard on the editors. But what I loved about this episode too is again just the unity between all of them coming together, and mm-hmm. now they're they've all decided that they want to find out more about Lumen and what they're doing there, why they're there, and why all this is happening. So. I feel like they're going to completely rebel or it's leading up to a big rebellion. You know, the, the thing that I've been waiting for the whole time is because, you know, we've talked about this before. Uh, they all have different reasons uh, to to make them kind of connect to the, the work they're doing or to be pushed out of it, except for Heli. She was ready to be done literally from the first second. But everybody else had a different reason to try and do it. And so for everybody, it took a different reason to pull them out of it and to make them rebel. You know, uh, seeing Dylan's kid, that did the trick. Uh, Or for for Irving, he just wanted love, you know? His partner's No, I mean, Milchick even says it, you know, like when... When uh, Irv shows up, he's just like, I don't know what's going on with you people today. You know, he even says it himself. <laughs> he's right. like, what is up? What is up? What is going on? Why can't you guys just like all just get back in line and let's go about our days like we've always gone about our days. But Irv also made a great comment, too, saying that um, you're not severed. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. are one of you're the only person here that's not severed. So mm-hmm. you are not living this life that we are of the Indian Audi. And I thought that was Again, another clever line for for him to say. Let's go to the ending scene because I feel the opening of this episode was so powerful just as the closing scene was. So we see Mark. uh, He's at home. He's drinking. He has torn up the photograph because he originally was trying to get Alex to say, telling her, okay, he's over. He's, He's moved forward. But Alex leaves. So now he's collecting the pieces of this picture together. But so much was said but unsaid 
through the imagery. Well, and it's it's clever. I believe this is Stiller again. This is Ben Stiller directing again. But it's clever because like I was, I was watching, you see that he, before he rips it up, he shows it to her. And the face, you, there's not focus on the face. And so like my initial thought was, I wonder if we're ever going to like, you know, maybe see her in a flashback mm-hmm. later on or in this, in this, whatever, rips it up, throws it ground. And then as he's putting it together, you see that his finger is covering her face as he's kind of taping and, you know, telling the story of everything. And then in that last moment, holds us, yeah, they show us exactly who that person mm-hmm. and it's, it's Casey. Didn't expect that. No, not Didn't at all. Not at all. And, you know, it makes me think back to like when she's coming out of the break room and Mark's going into the break room. You know, they have like that very like small little hallway, you know, like that from that interaction and everything else. And just even when she's she shows up to monitor Heli, like you don't see like any recognition or anything. So just like that crazy picture just to see that shot. I mean, it's. Yeah, I was uh, I was very surprised. I was very stunned, you know, because we we know that there there was no recognition that we could tell before. But then also, she was a character that was very important early on, but had no backstory that we were aware of, and that's always suspicious because the show is so carefully and precisely planned in terms of reveals and details and i forgot because I, I, I kept saying for most of these episodes i kept saying you don't introduce something without doing whatever yes. but that was the one thing that i totally discarded because i was so focused in on everybody else at lumen i mean even right. christopher walken like you know bert and all these other guys that yeah miss casey just i kind of forgot about her for a minute right and that's brilliant to drop this on us as there's two episodes left are we seeing it in any and an audi of miss casey or has the Audi completely been removed and it's just the any that we're seeing of her? I mean, it brings up the whole question of what did Mark see? Like, okay, so mm-hmm. supposedly we know that there's this tree. So maybe she died in a car accident and the car hits the tree. But then, like, was there a body? Yeah, we don't really have any way of knowing. He seems 100% convinced that she is indeed dead, which would suggest that there was something to confirm that for him. But, but wait, I'm going to also add to that real quick, Jeff, that but his sister too, right? So it's mm-hmm. not like we're just seeing Mark's perspective, but even the sister has talked yes. about his wife's death. So obviously there were other bystanders that are involved in this. Yeah, so to their world, she is very, 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 very dead. Uh, but we find out that there is at least a version of her somehow that is, unless there's a twin. I was going to say, is that a cheap yeah. ploy to say that there's a twin? hundred percent, right? But so far, they haven't done any cheap ploys. So, probably not. But, uh... Then it, and then it comes down to, like, who... Who is she, though? Right, so let's say, okay, I don't know if we... I can't remember Mark's, like, Audi's wife's name or whatever, but... So then, did she make the choice? Did she make the choice to do the severed thing, the in and outy thing? Or did Lumen somehow get their grasp and use her as an experiment? And right. she's either, you know, and like it's against her will. Well, listen, that could be a possibility because I don't remember if it was episode five or six. Remember that one part when uh, Miss Corbell is talking to Milchek and he's like, where's Miss Casey? And she's like, oh. I'm trying out an experiment. And we don't even know if she has a recognition of Mark in any other way as well, right? Like, is she only seeing him in this any world where they're working? Um, or does she, where she hasn't really showed it to us as the viewers? Or does she have some type of 
something that she recognizes that they have a relation. I don't know. Or let me really screw with everybody. Here, here's the ultimate Easter egg just to screw with everybody. That candle. Neither person recognized the red green mm, candle yeah. when they were sitting down together in the in the health and wellness, you know, going over that scenario. So like I wonder if the candle is another kind of thing that she brought in just to sit there and say like, will they ever recognize this thing? Or mm -hmm. I, you know, bring this thing for comfort to Mark. Little did we, and I mean, granted at the same time, maybe the candle never existed for, for right now, Ms. Casey. Casey. That is possibly true. And it's also possibly true that they, cause we knew that she was trying to test Mark um, and do like another little experiment, but maybe she was trying to test them both. Who, Corbell? Yeah. Yes. Yes. We already know she's twisted. So. Corbell's already twisted, and I'm I think twisted. she knows about the tree. She knows about. Obviously, she took the candle, so we know something is going on there. But I guess we're gonna have to wait and see, just like you guys, on how this thing all unfolds. So wait. So do we see her showing up in episode eight? Do we see her showing up in episode nine, or do we? We have to wait till season two. I have a feeling we'll see her in episode nine. Right, because like the phone, the phone, like I think at some point he threw he threw the uh, the phone away. Like in five, shows up again in seven. Mm -hmm. it, it it takes like an episode. No, in six though, or something like. But you know what I'm saying? Like it it took a little bit from like some of the production predictions that I did for where the phone showed mm -hmm. showed up again. So for her, right? Is it will we see? This is the cliffhanger kind of for us. So then, do we see her in the next episode or? You know, maybe, maybe the place doesn't burn down and, and they show up. <laughs> maybe she's burning it down. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. There's a lot of things we have to wrap up. I mean, we have to wrap up how what form their resistance takes. We have to see uh, the Harmony's meeting with the partners. The Egan, the Egan oh, family that, gala. Yes. Exactly. They can't tease something that big and not take us behind the scenes to the creepers. Uh, we have to, I mean, okay, this, this is me talking to the powers that be. We have to see what happens with the goats. Oh, I was just going to say that. Where are the baby goats? <laughs> right. What's the point nah, of the baby man, goats? The goats aren't happening this season. Or like this season. The goats are going to come back in season, season two, two because <laughs> there's too much right now that has to happen. You know, like the fact that Harmony needs to talk with, you know, the Egan's, uh, the Egan family at the, the gala or whatever about Grainer's death. That's a mm -hmm. huge thing. We got to figure out who this mystery woman is, mm -hmm. you know, so, and then, um, and then, you know, Mark coming back to his sister and maybe finishing what he started with the conversation. I think we're mm -hmm. going to see a little bit more interaction with Mark and his sister in the upcoming episodes. I don't know if eight or nine, but I think that we're going to see them having a little bit more dialogue together. Yeah, they have to because, you know, she, they didn't even get to finish the conversation and she was curious and suspicious enough to bring it up independently. She's hungry to actually get a little bit more insight into the creepy, creepy stuff that Lumen does. Well, that's a wrap for us. Thank you for joining us for Processing Severance, an after-show podcast brought to you by the Hollywood Critics Association. And if you haven't subscribed, please do so. We are on YouTube. We are on all social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, engage with us. We want to hear from you. We love reading your comments. We love getting your emails. Again, Hollywood Critics Association. And join us next week when we come back for Episode 8.